Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, author and historian Michael Twitty takes us on a culinary journey in his new book, Kosher Soul. Twitty explores the common ground between Jewish and African foods and traditions. It's like a common joke. It's like, okay, oh, this tastes horrible. You have to try some. Why do I have to try some if it's horrible? Because it's horrible. It's like there's a certain wisdom in being able to understand what is horrible, being able to appreciate the good and being able to survive things that aren't so great. That's coming up later in the show. But first, are you an adult who loves cereal? And would you admit it? I'm 80 years old, and I love Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. Brave adults are coming forward to challenge the notion that Frosted Flakes is just a kid's cereal. I eat them, I love them, and I don't care who knows. (laughs) What more can you say? Frosted Flakes have the taste adults have grown to love. They're great. In the 80s and 90s, ads like this featured brave adults confessing that they did, in fact, love Frosted Flakes. Right now, I'm joined by an adult who does not hide his love for cereal. My first guest, Gabe Fonseca, reviews breakfast cereals on his YouTube channel, Cereal Time TV. Gabe, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. So, I have an odd confession. I remember eating Sugar Pops. Sugar Pops are tops. Remember that? Um, yeah, yeah. It's probably before your time. I was watching Arthur Godfrey, which is is a name nobody under 60 has heard of, on a little tiny black and white television that was about a foot wide, eating them directly out of the box on the sofa. So they imprint on your psyche. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There must be some deep emotional attachment to, to cereal. Is it the creativity that goes into this? Is it what companies can do with the simple sugar-coated grains and all the imagination that goes into it? What is the thrill here? I think you you, you kind of nailed it. It is a combination of all that for me. I think a lot of it obviously harkens back to just nostalgia. Uh, growing up, eating sugary breakfast cereal, as I'm sure many kids did watching Saturday morning cartoons, sort of just gets a bond at a young age association with this this uh this breakfast food and the mascots and the colors and the flavors and it sort of uh it sticks with you. Did you see a progression from the early days, let's say the early days being the 50s of cereal where they they had simpler concepts and then they expanded on them? So when I look back at the cereals that I never got to try that, you know, started the whole sugar cereal craze, the cereal actually would have sugar pops or sugar crinkles or sugar in the name. And right. it was just a handful of ingredients with a lot of sugar in it. Right. And as parents became more sort of health conscious, they would remove sugar from the names of a lot of the cereals. They'd still keep the sugar in there, but they, they would market it not as, as candy, essentially. Yeah, I remember doing some research on this a while back. And the Kellogg brothers really started with a healthy way to start the day, right? Because people started with cold meats in the morning, right? They thought that grains, toasted wheat, for example, or corn was healthy and then obviously got subverted 
by the notion of sugar. <laughs> but but the, but these were really supposed to be healthy foods, right? Yeah, as everything kind of in our culture goes, they're like, well, how can we mass market this and make the most money possible out of this? And it's like, well, if we can get kids to eat this as well, you know, and and the surefire way to do that is, well, let's just sweeten them and add sugar to them. I think it's so interesting. It's sort of a primer in mass marketing, right? Because uh, talking about using cartoon characters or icons or tigers or things that would appeal to kids and bright colors and sugar, somebody Mm -hmm. really figured out how to sell this stuff. Well, back in the day with the commercials, they did a really good job of world building, you know, mythology building. Captain Crunch had many enemies, Jean the Foot. He had, you know, the Milk Sea and Crunch <laughs> Island. They had like little maps you could get in the boxes that, you know, it kind of explored the, the world of Captain Crunch and his friends and his enemies and where he lived and where he sailed and stuff. So this is Crunch Island, Captain. Yep, and we're here to show the world the secret of Crunch Island. Then let's go. Through the fields of upsy-daisies. There. Wow, a whole mountain of golden sweet Captain Crunch cereal. Linus the Lionhearted and a few other characters had their own cartoon at one point Mm -hmm. on Saturday mornings. And this was when back when you could use those characters and actually have cartoons for advertising that they changed that because they were like, we can't market to kids that way. But they had all these characters who went on adventures and had stories. The Linus the Lionhearted Show is brought to you by Post. The cereals that start your day a little bit better. Post. I love it. It's a, it's a PR person's dream. Um, so, so tell me about the back of the box. I spent, like many kids in the 50s and 60s, eating cereal, looking at the back of the box. And I read every word. Yeah. There were games on it. There were other things. So how do they use the back of the box to, uh, to draw kids in? Yeah, I mean, whether it's prizes in the box or games on the back of the box, they keep your eyes <laughs> glued to the box, and they definitely don't have prizes in boxes anymore. And even the back of the boxes nowadays aren't what they were when I was growing up. So what could you send away for in the heyday? Oh, man. Books, toys, all kinds of stuff. Lucky Charms had one where you could send away for a tree. And on special boxes of Lucky Charms with new marshmallow trees, with two proofs of purchase, you can get your own real baby tree for free. I had a shirt that I sent away for, a Rainbow Bright shirt. It was just, you know, you would cut out the back of the box with proofs of purchase and some money and you you just send away for it. And then, you know, a month or two, it took a while. It took weeks. Yeah. It took weeks. It took long time. (laughs) You forgot about it. And then it would arrive in the mail and you go, Oh, I forgot. I got this mug or uh, this ball or Frisbee or something like that from uh, Captain Crush. (laughs) So you started collecting cereal boxes, I guess a decade ago. So I just have to ask, you know, how many cereal boxes do you have exactly? Yeah. So I, uh, at this point, I, I haven't counted in a while, but the last time I checked, it was around 400 plus boxes. But I do have um, a little small room in our house where we have the boxes displayed on the wall. Is there ever discussion in your household about how that room could be used for something else? <laughs> oh, you've talked to my wife. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's... Uh, it's a very small room that we kind of is our game room. And so she's like, yeah, you can, you can have this room here that will just be where the cereal is. <laughs> and, and reportedly you have custom Captain Crunch sneakers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, that's, I, that's my favorite cereal of all time is Captain Crunch. And I, 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 I hesitate to wear them in public because I don't like to get them dirty. So they're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of are more of a conversation piece than practical at this point. 
you have your top 10 list of favorite cereals. So I'm just going to ask you, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Spider-Man, that's number four on your list. Why is it number four <laughs> on your list? Why is it in the top 10? Well, first of all, I will say that list fluctuates depending on my mood. And those were basically the same cereal, and it was just a frosted rice Chex cereal with marshmallows in it. Now, for Teenage Mutant Turtles, they had specific marshmallows to that brand and Spider-Man specific marshmallows to that brand. And there isn't still a cereal like that on the market right now. And so I, maybe it's just my memory has sort of built it up better than, than, it, than it was. But, you know, the kid in me is like, oh, I just remember eating that and loving it so much. But I do have to ask the obvious question, which is I remember years ago, I, I used to love Hostess cupcakes, right? The chocolate. Mm -hmm. I ate yeah. a lot of those as a kid. Uh, and so I remember we were – I was doing a recipe for making them from scratch, right? And mm. so we started by tasting Hostess cupcakes, and they were awful. <laughs> so <laughs> I have this imprinted memory of that uh, and a number of other things. But now as an adult, I'm older than you, but my taste buds are not the same as they were when I was eight. Today, now that you're you know, a voting age, why, why, why does Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cereal still appeal? Is the imprint, emotional imprint, strong enough to overcome the actual flavor of it, or do you like the flavor? I think I think it's the former, honestly. I do because I love cereal. I talk about it all the time. I have my box and stuff. I don't eat those sugary cereals for breakfast. I could never do that now. I eat them, you know, maybe once a week for dessert. I'll have a, a bowl of Cinnamon Toast Crunch or Fruity Pebbles. But even then, I find after that bowl that it's it's too much sugar for me. And so if I were to be able to eat them again, I would uh, – I'm sure my taste buds would be like, oh, this is not this is not how I remember it. But I, I still hold on to that memory. Like I said, it's still uh, the nostalgic sort of seeing that box and being able to recreate those memories of uh, when you were younger. Gabe, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I need to visit your room of cereal. Thank you. Thank you once again, and you're always invited anytime. That was Gabe Fonseca, host of the YouTube channel Serial Time TV. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Malton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. Where are you calling from? Levittsburg, Ohio. And how can we help you today? Canned peppers and oil are really popular around here. Um, they're given as gifts, sold in local restaurants and stores. And I've been wanting to get into canning, and I was asking my out-of-state friends if they had a good recipe, and they were horrified at the safety concerns with canning foods and oil, and they've never heard of peppers in oil. I was wondering if peppers are an exception or if it's actually unsafe. Well, there's two other ingredients that you want to find in there besides the oil. And if they're the right amount, then you should be safe. And that would be salt and acid and sugar, actually, although I wouldn't put sugar in my peppers. But those are all uh, preservatives and when in the right proportions would make it safe. You know, what I would do is reach out to your local extension, you know, the government sort of farming extension and get their advice for the okay. proportions that would be appropriate when canning. And then it should be fine. Chris? If there's going to be a problem in canning, that's going to be because you used oil because you may not heat it up enough, even with pressure canning, to kill off any potential botulism, whatever. 
the molecules of fat and oil can protect the bacteria if it exists. And they also you're dealing with a very alkaline mixture, peppers, et cetera, like green beans or alkaline. I would just wouldn't do it. And if anyone's given you canned peppers and oil, I don't know how much acid you'd have to add, but probably so much that it would just taste a bit odd. I agree with Sarah. You can check with your extension service, but this is walking on the wild side. Just get a good recipe and talk to your extension. It's not impossible. Don't do it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there are things like if you want to go hang gliding, right, or parachuting, I get it because there's a thrill there. There's risk and reward. The reward of canning an oil seems de minimis in relationship to the risk. I mean, I'm personally young and healthy, but I do have a disabled mother who lives with me. So I'm going to go with maybe no, maybe no for certain situations. Yeah, it's just you want to be really careful with canning. Well, that for sure. That's why I don't can. I'm sure I'm going to kill somebody. You know, my mother used to say that about her cooking when she cooked a turkey at 170 degrees in the oven for 10 hours. Hmm. I used to say, maybe we should up the oven temperature. And her answer was, well, I haven't killed any of you yet. And I thought that was actually not a very good position. No, you're right. You're right. Anyway, Chelsea, thanks so much. Good question. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Bonnie in Eugene, Oregon. How can we help you? I, as a young cook who was not raised eating beans, I got interested in eating a lot of beans. And I learned the hard way that you cannot cook beans with tomatoes or they will not soften. After some disastrous chilies, I learned this and that has been my mantra ever since and it's worked great. Cook the beans separately, then add the tomato. During the pandemic, there were a lot of recipes coming out um, using stuff out of your pantry and bean recipes. And I saw at least one, maybe two recipes that were like, throw it all in the liquid and even some tomato. And I was surprised to see that. But I gave one of these recipes a try. And just as I suspected, the beans did not get soft. So why would somebody tell you to do that? (laughs) And... uh, Maybe that's not something you can answer, but it seemed weird because it was from a reputable source. And um, I've also heard that hard water can make beans not soften, and I do not have hard water. I have a very soft water. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about this. Yeah, the first thought is after 40 years of this, I can tell you that you should never fully trust (laughs) really almost any recipe because people's kitchens are different or people make mistakes or, you know— their ingredients are different, so you're absolutely right. A high-acid environment will toughen the outer skins. It'll slow down cooking. I once did a Boston baked beans in Vermont, I think 20 years ago, and uh, after eight hours, they still weren't cooked because I had the molasses <laughs> exactly. in there and the tomatoes. You know, so it, it was just a disaster. So, yeah, I think small amount of acid probably isn't going to hurt anything, but too much acid will harden the outer skin making it hard for the water to get in to cook the beans. So you're absolutely right. In a pressure cooker, you know, or instant pot on the pressure cooker setting, it may be it could handle a higher amount of acidity because of the pressure. I don't know the answer to that. But you should not be in shock and awe (laughs) that a recipe did not work because your instinct's absolutely right. I agree. Okay. I have heard the thing about hard water, that it can be a problem, not in all situations, but it can Yeah, I mean, just add the acid once the beans are cooked in the last 45 minutes or hour or whatever it is of cooking, and then you're fine. That totally makes sense. Maybe uh, a little bit of tomato paste you can get away with, but why bother? Just wait and put it in after they're soft. 
very often you saute tomato paste to sort of caramelize it and bring out the flavor. If you had a tablespoon mm-hmm. of tomato paste, I think that would be fine. Yeah, I do too. With the onions. But it's just like don't add a can of tomatoes or a ton of molasses or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, then good rule of thumb and let the buyer beware with the recipes. <laughs> yeah, that's they should do the buyer beware cookbook. That's yeah, right. right. <laughs> Which is absolutely <laughs> true. Bonnie, thanks for calling. Yes. You're, you're hey, right. Thanks very yeah. much. Okay, okay. take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to take your calls. Give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bob Gilpatrick. How can we help you? Well, listen, I've been uh, baking for many, many decades, but my cooking skills aren't as great. I'm looking for a resource, maybe a book, on the chemistry of cooking. I'm thinking it might help me. Do you have a recommendation? Yes, I have several. The gold standard, although it's pretty dry reading, but the information is wonderful, is Harold McGee. He did a book called On Food and Cooking. It's very, very detailed. Okay. Of course. Let's just say you can't read the book. I mean, it's so technical. I mean, it's... It's very dry. It's a reference book. Yes, it is. A more modern version, somebody that Chris has worked with a lot, is Kenji Lopez-Alt, The Food Lab, and that's a very good one. And I have an additional one, and I don't even know if it's still out. There's two or three of them, and I don't remember the name of the author, but the name of the book, which is pretty unique, is What Einstein Should Have Told His Chef. It's Robert Wolk, W-O-L-K-E. So you know those books, too. And, he, and they're two, two editions, yeah. just the first and the second. And line. they're fun, and they're yeah, probably the oh, cool. easiest of all three books that I just mentioned to digest. Okay. There are two others. Uh, years ago, Shirley Corher, who was from Atlanta, uh, she wrote Cookwise. And then she wrote okay. Bakewise, and she was the first person to really combine she, she was. kitchen science, cooking science with recipes because they're cookbooks as well. Right. So her stuff is yeah. very manageable. The guy I've used for years, Guy Crosby, Cook, Taste, and Learn, is a book he came out with about a year ago. It's a fairly slim volume, but he's really good. Okay. His stuff is really solid. But I think in terms of ease of use, Bakewise or Cookwise – because they have recipes, too, yeah. is, is probably the most useful. You can see it in action. Okay. And Kenji, the food too. lab, Kenji Lopez-Alt, who's, he's brilliant. All right. I'll start there, maybe. All, All right. right, Bob. Thank thanks you. Thanks for calling. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Awesome. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? It's Dip Plots from Providence, Rhode Island. How can we help you? My wife and I have a muffin tin that I think we've had since we got married over 50 years ago. It's starting to wear through at the seams. So I looked around for a new one. They all have six cups now. Ours has eight cups. Our recipe is for eight muffins. I suppose we could find a recipe for modern muffin tins. Can't scale the recipe we have easily since three quarters of an egg doesn't really work. And the recipe we have will overflow the cups if it's divided six ways instead of eight. I tried to find out when and why the design of muffin tins changed. I thought that if anyone had a handle on this change, you would. What dictator had the ability to make every muffin tin manufacturer change the capacity of their product? Well, if I don't have the answer, I'll make one up really quickly. First of all, how big were these muffins in the eight muffin tin? 
most muffin tins today are usually 12. There's a half six tin or 12. six. Yeah. Was the eight one a bigger size diameter at the bottom than in the typical 12 muffin tin today? I think probably the same. Well, if you go back to the 19th century, there were things called gem pans, and uh-huh. they were the precursor to muffin tins. They were usually used for little cakes and things, like Fanny Farmer uh-huh. calls for gem pans. So I wonder if this tin wasn't designed specifically for muffins. It was designed for little cakes, for example. And if I tried to confuse you, I did it on purpose because <laughs> I'm not actually sure of the answer, but that's my best answer. Yeah. It wasn't really a muffin tin would be what I would say. It's only about 50 years old. I mean, I know we got it new, so it's not something that goes back to Fanny Farmer. The recipe that comes on the box of cornmeal that we used to get, the cylindrical boxes, right? it made eight muffins in this tin. You got me. So. <laughs> I'm totally stumped. I mean, I've seen cake pans, other things, different sizes, shapes. I've never seen a muffin tin with eight. No, me neither. The thing that you really stumped me on is that that canister of cornmeal right. has a recipe on the back, and it's for eight muffins. That's yeah. really— It used to. It doesn't still. No, no, no. I know. But that meant that at the time, a lot of people were baking and had the pan he had, and I've never seen one. Right, right. So, I don't know. Hmm. Dick, let me first of all say congratulations on 50 years of marriage. That's— pretty wonderful. It's actually 51 now, so... Oh, wow. Uh, Thank you. Well, good for you. One of the things I was going to suggest is a solution. You love this recipe for eight muffins, is that correct? It works very well. One thing you could do is take those cupcake liners and get two ramekins that are about the same size as the muffin tins and line them with the cupcake liners and then, you know, just do your six in your tin and then another two on the outside. You can scale this up or down easily. You know what the weight is. You look it up of a large egg, if it calls, I assume, for large eggs. And you simply whisk your eggs and then weigh out the right amount. So three quarters of an egg is really an easy thing to do. do I think another thing that we could do is buy a 12 muffin tin and use eight of them. What I would suggest if you do that is leave the ones in the middle alone. We've done this with popovers recently. So we found that if you leave the center ones alone, then you get even baking all around. You mean empty. That's a great yeah. suggestion. Yeah. yeah. That'll work. Actually, that's a great idea. Well, Dick, will you let us know how it goes? Of course. Okay. Thanks for calling. Yes. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Michael Twitty shares the foods of the African and Jewish diasporas. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I'd never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and 
the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by historian and author Michael Twitty. His latest book is called Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. Michael, welcome back to uh, Milk Street. Well, thank you so much for having me again. The Cooking Gene was and is one of my favorite food books ever, so 
It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Your new book, Kosher Soul, it's a, it's a complicated concept, I think, in part, but maybe you could just set it out for us. Sure. So Kosher Soul is about my spiritual and culinary journey as an African-American Jew, and not just as an African-American Jew, but as one who has learned with and eaten with other African-American Jews who have lessons to teach about their own journeys. It's a food memoir. It's part cookbook. It's also part culinary history, but it's never, you know, purely one of the three. It's a blend. It's a braid of the three, like a challah, if you want. It's a, it's a, it's a literary challah. That's what kosher soul is. This concept is, of course, it's from you. It's interesting. It's thought-provoking. Um, trying to connect the lines between Jewish food and African or African-American food. You say, these are your words, the centrality of humor and joy in both traditions, African and Jewish diasporas, of beating back trauma through brave happiness. Nothing is like being in this specific, crazy, busy intersection. It is maddening and it's lovely. Is that the nut of it? I think that the first thing you have to think about as food as a means by which people protect themselves, heal themselves, surround themselves, nourish themselves. So for me, it's like the Jewish diaspora and the African diaspora, specifically the African Atlantic diaspora, but these huge groups of people that have made the modern world possible. And there's, there's poverty there and there's success and there's triumph and all of that. And the food helps you along. The food helps you get through these massive, horrible things, but also brings people together and helps define the people and who they are. It's never just the food for its own sake. It's always attached to another value of, of human existence, of comfort, of pleasure, all of it. And I make the joke that we're the only people that like to eat our oppression. It's like a common joke. It's like, okay, oh, this tastes horrible. You have to try some. Why do I have to try some if it's horrible? Because it's horrible. It's like there is a certain wisdom in being able to understand what is horrible, being able to appreciate the good and being able to survive things that aren't so great. You know, it's like my, my late mom used to always go, this is nasty. You got you to gotta have some. Like, why do I have to eat my oppression? Why? Why? And now I said, there's a simple wisdom in this. And we're, we're, the, we're, the, we're the two people who represent the original sins of the West. You know, outside of, of course, misogyny, anti-disabled stuff, um, things against queer people and the poor. You know, it's the Jews and the blacks. And sometimes we're both. And then we get a double. So what does our food look like when we get a double? Is it more joyful? Is it more lamentful? Those are the questions that I'm trying to answer. So do you think the Jewish culture, from a culinary point of view, and the sub-Saharan African experience are both linked and also distinctive from other places in the world in terms of how the food relates to culture? Yes, because the moment we became a diaspora, that was it. I see. As, as diaspora people, as people with history of slavery, right. exile, yearning to go home, but also yearning to be at home, to be accepted, also being the other, making fun of our captors, but also being oppressed by the idea that captors may be better than us. All those kind of questions. 
that's what makes us so unique. You talk about lies told about cultures that eventually become self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, can you give me, you know, an example or two? Hmm. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I think one of the lies is that everything is lost, that everything has to be handed down, that what we do now doesn't matter. You know, that's one of the things that I got, got out of Kosher Soul the most is that, you know, I was meeting with um, Chase Rishon, who's a black Hasidic rabbi, young fellow. And he says to me that, sure, we have all these amazing, interesting histories that people are very curious about. But at some point, it's like the Rebbe of Mitzrich, whose Yichas was destroyed in a, in a disaster. His mother was very upset. And he said, no, don't worry. He says, you know, part of our Yichas, by the way, in Yiddish means a pedigree heritage. He says, it's not about the Yikas that we've had. It's about the Yikas we will make. It's about the traditions we're going to make. It's about the merit of the, the, the good deeds that we do now and go and move forward with that matter. And so that for me is the new model. It's not so always about the myth of, well, if you didn't receive it, you don't have it. What about if you make it? So the, the food itself, I was looking at the recipes in the book. Some of them seem, you know, like chicken yasa from Senegal, for example, um, red rice, hop and john. But then other ones are clearly, quote unquote, cross culture. We are combining them. Kosher soul, spring rolls, Louisiana style lakes. Are these recipes things from your own personal experience where you're combining the two traditions? Or is there an actual composite cuisine where you see the two traditions coming together. One of the things that I want to be very, very, very careful about was not defining a kosher soul tradition. And the reason why is because there are layers here. And the, sometimes these layers have been forgotten or misplaced or undervalued. So for example, the yam kugel is straight out of, you know, Mrs. Mildred Covert, a blessed memory the world that was created when black women and Ashkenazi Jewish women in the deep South interacted and made recipes together. The Yasa and Hoppin' John is very much kind of like return to black roots tradition and African-American food and cuisine. And that these foods can be altered to sort of reflect both tables. And then of course, there's other ones that are just straight up having fun, like the kosher soul rolls. You know, it's the pastrami, the collard greens, the idea of the spring roll, the, the very Americanness of it, but also the East Asian influence playing between all of those pieces. So I wanted to make sure that the reader was able to be able to participate in all these different parts of kosher soul, not just one, and understand that kosher soul depends on the kosher soul cook, not the other way around. So as... Jewish people immigrated from Germany to the United States in the mid-19th century. Was there a point at which African-American food and Jewish food intersected? Well, absolutely. I mean, look at Old Bay. I mean, right there, right there. Old Bay has a German-Jewish progenitor, but there's absolutely nothing in German-Jewish food that says there should be an Old Bay. Hmm. It's a combination of the foodways of the Chesapeake 
and German pickling traditions and spice traditions from Africa across the diaspora, all in one seasoning. And of course, there were there were other traditions. For example, the the deli tradition affects black eating highly because you know what the Jewish deli was one of the few places where black folks were introduced to a new whole way of eating that wasn't through domestic labor. You know, you, now you're in the great migration or you're in a, a Southern city in some places that deli might be the only integrated eating space or semi-integrated hmm. eating space. So it's like, you have to look for it, you know, what, but before you look for it, you have to know what you're looking for. Are there recipes today that really do, other than the ones that you just mentioned, reflect this symbiosis between the two cultures? Or are the foods coming out of the same notion of diaspora, but still separate? I mean, I could have basically, you know, reproved Marcy Cohen Ferris's work, Matzabal Gumbo, and given you one version. But also, there's what do Black Jews, what do African-American Jews eat? How do they celebrate? How do they make their own kosher soul? This is a newer thing. Hmm. Because for these families, these traditions weren't always written down. And now they are written down. What are they made of? And also, there's social distinctions you have to be aware of. So, for example, the women who worked in other women's kitchens, they didn't always put down on paper the labor they did for white women. In fact, it was kept separate from their personal lives. So how do we reckon that? What did it look like? What did it look like when a Kugel comes back into the black community? What kind of fruit, what level of sugariness, spicing goes into that Kugel? There weren't that many things that made that transfer, but those that did were much more Southern and black tasting and appearing looking than, you know, other dishes. So in the cooking gene, you you had a bigger point about where people come from and their perception of themselves and, you know, how cultures overlap and interact. If I was to step back from kosher soul and ask the same question, and that is, you know, what have you learned from this or what do you want other people to take away from this? what would your answer be? Leave no stone unturned. You know, this isn't just, this is a niche. This isn't, isn't like cute. It's, it's wow. There are all these people who have these different routes and routes into a place where Jewish peoplehood and black existence intersect. You know, I, I could have written a book about Ethiopian Jewish foodways, but that would have told you anything about the people from Mississippi, right? So I could have written a book about Brazilian Black Jews. And it's interesting and exciting. There's a reason why in Kosher Soul, I explored the food of white Southern Jewish Protestants who convert to Judaism alongside Black American Muslims, alongside Black American Jews. Because there's all of them have in common a very deep Southern heritage and roots, but also a love and adherence to the traditions. It's sort of like, what are your roots? What binds us together? We could, we could talk about di divides and differences all day long, but the very fact that these very different groups of people have a very similar outlook 
from the time they put on a head covering to the time they sit down to eat with their loved ones. We see a bigger sense of the human family, the American family, than we often get to look at. You have a deeply humanistic view of the world. Um, does that make you an optimist? Absolutely. I have to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to be. I don't have a choice. I, don't have, I have no I choice her. in this. I mean, you, you, you've seen it. This is hard. This is hard stuff to look at day to day. Okay. It can turn your stomach. It can make you feel hopeless or break your heart. And yet there's something very special about reaching across the table, reaching across the aisle and being in contact with someone who has every reason not to trust you like you, but has to out of a sense of hope. For example, the feeling of, I know where I am. I know that I feel at home. But when I go to Sahadi's on Atlantic Avenue in New York, even though there is a conflict, ongoing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs. If you look across the street, there's a halal soul food place. I get that. I mean, I'm, I'm there too. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, my feet are in so many different places. And my Americanness makes that possible. My Africanness, my African globalness makes that possible. My Jewish diasporaness makes that possible. Knowing that my family has been through all these different places and continents and people over time has made that possible. And that's what makes it exciting to live. Michael, um, it's always a pleasure. And it's always just really exciting to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. That was Michael Twitty, author of Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. For Twitty, food is a time machine. It's a way of experiencing the past through your senses, even though, of course, you're stuck in the present. Food is also a means of coping with the trauma of life through the humor and joy present in both Jewish and African culinary traditions. In this 21st century, however, food has become trivial, reduced to Instagram size, momentary pleasures that are fleeting at best. The flip side is Twitty's worldview, where pain and pleasure coexist, where food sustains culture in hard times, where the past and present are connected through culinary tradition. So the challenge is pretty clear. Say all of that in your next tweet. This is Most Year Radio. Coming up, we consider the apple with Dan Pashman. That's after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing 
at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, spaghetti with parsley pesto. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Don't get me started on pesto, because so many people (laughs) think it's, you know, basil. But obviously, there are thousands of pestos all over Italy. And the one I sub out most often, as most people do, is parsley, because it's cheap and you've got it sitting around. Basil doesn't last very long, and it's expensive. So, you know, I make parsley pesto all the time, but I think you had a slightly different take on something you actually had in Italy. Is that right? Yeah. Could I tell you that it reminded me of gelato and still keep your attention? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm, I'm all ears. I'm all ears. <laughs> I was in Rovello, which is a very tiny hilltop town on the Amalfi Coast. And I was at a restaurant, La Vecchia Cantina, where Chef Antonio Cioffi introduced me to his take on pesto di prezzemolo, which is just parsley, pesto. When he presented it to me, he takes a container out of the refrigerator, because he had made it ahead of time, and he takes a spoon and he starts scooping it slowly, almost sensuously, and it looks like gelato. But it wasn't because he then took that scoop of gelato and threw it in a skillet with some spaghetti. And Mm. it immediately turned into this amazingly rich, creamy sauce, a pesto for the spaghetti. And when I tasted it, I could not believe how creamy and savory this pesto was. I had never tasted anything like it. I mean, I've made parsley pesto plenty of times myself. This was nothing like I had ever done before. And then, like, okay, he hadn't done enough. He then further blew my mind by telling me no nuts, no pine nuts, and Mm. no cheese were harmed in the making of this pesto. Okay, so how did he get that incredibly thick, unctuous gelato texture? He takes a bunch of parsley, and he blanches it. He just 
dunks it in some boiling water for, you know, maybe 30 seconds or so. And then he purees it with olive oil, just a hint of garlic and some lemon juice. I mean, we are on the Amalfi Coast after all. And it just becomes silky, silky smooth. And it's that blanching that is key because as we later, you know, figured out as we were playing around with the recipe ourselves at Milk Street, you're breaking down the cellular walls of the parsley when you do that quick blanch. And in doing so, you allow it to puree so much more smoothly huh. than if you had used the parsley fresh. Right. So the resulting pesto is just impossibly creamy. Again, but with no nuts and no huh. cheese. And it was just so rich and delicious. I could not believe it. Now, I think you mentioned to me there was some element of umami in this as well. Yes. So is there something else you haven't mentioned about this recipe? You're holding back? I did. Yes, I'm holding back. So there is one, eh, do we want to call it a harder to find ingredient here in the U.S.? Maybe. Colatura di alici, which is the Italian version of fish sauce, really. And it adds that kind of umami richness that we get in a lot of Asian cuisines from fish sauce. Can be hard to find, but we found that just one single oil-packed anchovy fillet thrown into the blender, perfect. Gives you that same rich umami note and completely complements everything else going on in the pesto. Really delicious. I do have a question. Did he use some of the pasta cooking water to make the sauce? Yep, a little bit, just to thin it out. And of course, to also at the same time thicken it because of the starches in the water. But it was amazing. It comes together so quickly. Now, of course, it was gelato-like because he had made it in advance and he put it in the freezer. You don't need to do that at home. I mean, it is really appealing when you see it scooped out like gelato, but you don't need to do that. You can actually just puree it and throw it in the skillet and throw it in with your pasta. But it was very satisfying to watch. I wanted it on an ice cream cone. Well, spaghetti with parsley pesto proves the golden rule of cooking, which is simpler is always best, right? Absolutely. JM, another lesson from your constant, I would say, trips to Italy. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You can get the recipe for spaghetti with parsley pesto at MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, it's culinary troublemaker, Dan Pashman. Hey, Dan, how are you doing? I'm worried, Chris. I'm worried. Oh, no, that's my job. (laughs) I'm the downer on this show, not you. Well, it's apple season. We're getting into apple season. I used to be allergic to apples. It it was not life-threatening. My mouth would get itchy. I would start sneezing. It was enough to make me not like apples. And I managed to outgrow it, and now I love apples. Well, that's an upbeat story. (laughs) Right. It's a story of hope and renewal until... We get to the part about the fact that I feel like apple season is losing the PR battle with pumpkin spice latte season. Like, we seem to go from August to pumpkin spice. Yeah. And that's, we got to stop that. We got to make some space for apples. Yeah, you know, I I know a friend of mine runs Saratoga Orchards in New York State near Saratoga Springs. And his family's been in this business for generations. He said it used to be people would buy a bushel or two of apples and make applesauce and pies and stuff. Now they buy three apples, four cider donuts, and take a hero. Right. right. <laughs> you know, it's like he's in the entertainment business. He's not in the apple business. Right. So that's what's changed. It's become like food tourism as opposed to just like let's let's buy yes. a ton of delicious apples because now is the time that right. they're good and let's eat them a hundred right. different ways. Right. Putting aside specific varieties, Chris, just describe to me the qualities of your platonic ideal of an apple. 
we don't have enough time, but I'll, I'll give you the short version. Now, this is like, this is the speech I give all the time. Okay. Corn and apples have gone down the road of being sweet, and they've completely lost character. I mean, some of the old, uh, like, sheep's nose apples, uh, when I, in, in the fall, I actually go and get these great old varieties. They have, some of them are almost savory, you know. Some of them have interesting different notes. Uh, the skins are gnarly, you know, they, they don't look perfect. But I, I think it's depth of flavor and complexity of flavor. And what you get now is sweet. You know, that's all you get is sweet. So nobody likes apples that have complex, interesting flavors or skins that are a little rusty, you know. It's got to look great and taste sweet. That's what people want. And, and that drives me crazy. Right. No, it's true. I mean, I agree that I would like some more complex apples. I disagree with you on the skin. I, you know, I, I do feel like the breeding that has made the newer varieties of apples has made great advancements on the skin. I mean, that thick, chewy skin that's like the texture of felt <laughs> is, you know, like we can we can do better than that. And when you get an apple with that thin, taut skin and your teeth pierce through it and unleashes this just torrent of juice and flavor. I mean, that's a fantastic experience. I mean, you're right. Some of those apple varieties, the skin was really tough. You know, just because it's heirloom doesn't mean it's any good. But in general, you know, a good Rhode Island greening, or as I said, a sheep's nose, they had really interesting flavors. And so the old pie makers, you know, you use three or four varieties in a pie. And man, we... It wasn't cinnamon and sugar. Right. right? It was something very right. different. Yeah. What's your, like, if you're just going to snack on an apple, what's your ideal temperature for the apple to be at? Slightly chilled, like a bottle of red wine. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't want it cold out of the refrigerator, but I think cool room temperature. I like a little snap. Yeah. I, I like it cold out of yeah. the fridge. I want maximum crunch, maximum snap. And we, we would expect no less of you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> you, you never do anything halfway. That's right. Go hard or go home, even with apples. So what's your... Okay, so you, you've now posited a problem. It's pumpkin spice season, not apple season. What's your grand scheme to bring apples to the top of the you know media empire here? Well, I, I think that there are new varieties of apples coming out every couple of years. Um, there was a big release with one called the Cosmic Crisp a couple of years ago. But that was a dog. It never made it, right? Well... The, it's unclear. They say it's doing well. I'm not sure. But I think that if a new variety could come along and really capture people's imagination and sort of, quote unquote, go viral, for lack of a less annoying term, I think that would be good. Or maybe if an apple recipe went viral on social media, that could help to rekindle it. I think the other problem is distribution. I mean, major companies control distribution of apples and varieties of apples. And to break into that industry is really pretty right. hard. But maybe we just need a great TikTok video. Now, Chris, before we wrap up, I got a game for you to play. You ready? I'm ready. You've already dropped the names of a few obscure apples, as I expected you would. We're going to play a game right now called Apple Variety or New England Town. <laughs> I'm going to say something, and you have to tell me if it's an apple variety or a New England town. I expect you to be good at this. This is really in your wheelhouse. Go. First up, Ashmead's Kernel. Uh, I think that's a apple. Correct. And for the record, that's kernel, like a kernel of corn, right. not a military rank. <laughs> Next one, Cumberland. I don't think there's a Cumberland apple I know of, but I'd say, say it's a town. Correct. It sounds like it could be an apple, though, doesn't could, it? If you said Cumberland delicious, maybe that would be different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, next one, Lemonster. Oh, that's a town. You're right. You're right. I drive through it all the time. Adams Pearman. 
that that's definitely an apple. Yeah. Yes, you are right. Yeah. Next one, Baldwin. That's an apple. That was a trick question. The correct answer is both. Okay, well, fine, but it's an apple. <laughs> Strong. Oh, I've never heard of that as an apple. Well, I've never heard of this as a city either, town. Um, I'd have to go with town. I, I've never heard of it. You're right. Way. Yeah. You reasoned through that one well. It is yeah, a town. Thank you. All right, final question. In Apple Variety or New England Town, Cumberbatch. Didn't he star in Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> yes. There is a famous actor by that name. I, I You know, I, I don't know. I've never heard of it. I, I, I'd say Apple, but I've never heard of it. Well, I, I'll give you credit because it was another trick question, but I think you were, you were very close there, Chris. The correct answer is neither. Oh, okay. There you go. Cumberbatch sounds like it should be an Apple and a New England Town, but it is neither. You, you, you've missed your call. You, you should be the host of a game show. All right, all right. Well, if you want to work on a spinoff together, let me know. Absolutely. Dan, thank you very much. Uh, we agree that apples should be restored to their top-of-the-pyramid place in the fall. Uh, we just have to work harder on it. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Enjoy your next apple. That was Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast, also inventor of the new pasta shape, Cascatelli. That's it for today. We have over 200 episodes of Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177MilkStreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our television show, and explore our online store. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and cooking questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.